0: So we're doing this series um, on seven weeks on the last eight chapters of the book of Acts called Unsinkable Faith, and the idea behind it is life is a little bit like going out to sea, and you really don't know what's going to happen out there, and sometimes it's nice and sunny, and sometimes it is rough, and the issue is not really whether or not life is going to be rough and you're going to get beat up by it. That is going to happen. The question is, when life gets rough, are you going to sink? And is your faith gonna sink? And I would just argue, biblically speaking, if your faith sinks, you sunk. And if you don't sink, if you're able to hold on, are you able to hold on with enough additional capacity to actually be there to rescue other people whose faith and whose lives are sinking? Over the last four weeks, we already talked about the first four of, the, of these seven steps. One is that if you're with Jesus, God is with you. And you don't have to be afraid. And so you don't have to give up, and getting giving up off the table is the number one first step of having an unsinkable faith. The second is is that you need the Holy Spirit. If you are with Jesus, then the Holy Spirit is with you. And you have received the Holy Spirit if you believe in Jesus. If you will believe in and trust in Christ, you will receive the Holy Spirit. And you can also learn to walk with and understand and be guided by and empowered by the Holy Spirit, and you need that. The third is is that the gospel was designed for opposition, and it may feel like staying on course with the gospel isn't going to make sense because you're going against the waves, but that boat, the boat of the gospel, was made for 70-foot waves. It looks a little weird on flat water. It is best in the worst stuff, and you do not have to be afraid that the vessel of the gospel can cut through any storm. So stay on course with the truth of the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus and all the redemption that he brings and his kingdom. Fourth, we talked about last week, which is really supposed to come after this one, is, is that one of the things we're called for is to work for peace through sacrifice. Because when people are brought together, it creates buoyancy for everyone. When people are unified, and they're fighting in the same direction, and they're working for each other, and there are people among us sacrificing to hold us together in deep, pure, strong relationships, everyone is stronger, and it produces spiritual buoyancy for all of us. And then this week is this. It's a fairly simple sentence. You need a crew, not a clique. If you want your faith to be unsinkable, you need a crew. The word "crew" actually doesn 't get used that much. It, it gets used more than anything right now in like urban parlance and one of the reasons I think that 's true is that um, urban real urban life is one of the most difficult and dangerous lives in America, and people have to find people that they know they can depend on that play a role in their life and are vigilant of all possible dangers towards them in order to survive and to thrive in that context. In fact, the, the more likely you are to naturally form a crew, the worst things are around you. Some of the best crews ever formed were people who went to World War II together. Because that will make a crew out of you and your buddies. Because you have a very strong purpose other than hanging out and deciding you know which of the 7 to 14 dollar restaurants you're going to go to for 2 hours to text on your phone and talk to each other and drink refill Dr Pepper's okay and but that idea of crew is an appropriation of a nautical term because That's what crews are. Crews are a group of people on a vessel with a certain purpose, going in a particular direction, and they're a team that knows that they have a job to do. You need a crew. You need a team in your life that knows they have a job to do. One of the reasons I say it this way is because people who hear us say fellowship or community who are task-oriented want to gag. Right? When we talk about Christian fellowship. We have some Christian fellowship. And you're like, that just sounds really fun. It sounds like small talk around plastic tables with people I don't like. Can we just build something, shoot something, break something, do something? Right? I, that's how I feel, secretly. Right? And, but, but also, our lives, we do have a purpose. We do have purposes together. We, there are dangers. There are— all those things are true, and so not only is it just a way of saying Christian fellowship for task-oriented people, we have tasks. There are things we have to do together, and there are relationships that we need to be nourished, nourished from, and we need to know that we can do the job. And one of the, anybody who builds a ship, one of the first questions they ask is, who's the crew going to be? Right? Who's going to be the captain? Who's going to be the first mate? Who's going to be the chief mechanic? Who's going to be the electrician? Who's going to be there? Who's going to be on the team? And We only fail to think of our lives that way when we think our lives are going to be a whole lot easier or a a whole lot less purposeful than they actually are. The minute you realize what life is really like, what you're really like, what other people are really like, what you're really up against, what's really going to happen, you will stop thinking in civilian terms about your life to a certain extent. Or you will add metaphors of crew or something like that. When you go to sea, there's lots of stuff to do. I never—when I was in Florida, I never went to sea by myself. I know guys that went diving by themselves and came up, with their boat was gone. (laughs) It's not a good feeling, I'm told. And um, that's also true about life, though. That's one of the other similarities between life and going to sea is that there's just a lot of stuff that happens in life, a lot of different kinds of things. And some of them are relational, like you get discouraged, and you need somebody to help you. Some of them are practical, like something's going on with your kid, and it's really great to have an older friend, like a small group or something, that their kid sort of did that same thing, and they're like, look, here's what we did that did not work, and here's what we did that did work, and we're going to pray for you. Or you have shared expertise. You know, one of your buddies can fix your car, and you know where to find fish when he wants to go— I I don't know what what a fair trade is for that, but but life is just built that way. And when you realize what life is really like, you realize you need a crew. And that's one of the reasons why, in lots of places in the Bible, we are told that Christian fellowship or having a strong— Bond with other Christians who know that we're on a particular course or mission together is incredibly important So there's two things um, about having a strong and vigilant crew Having a strong crew and having a vigilant crew Strong crew The more difficult the task that we have, the more likely we are to do better with a crew And life is a pretty difficult task sometimes one of the things that I thought sort of when I read the Bible for the first time was that when you read the book of Acts from chapter 13 to 28, it follows the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and he he really is a larger-than-life biblical character. I mean, it's hard to get past that. I mean, Paul just—people are like, oh, we're going to kill you, and he's like, I'm still going to tell you the truth, and like people stone him, and he's still alive, and he gets thrown in jail, and you, I mean, you just read it. You read about this guy, and he just is this unflappable you can't push him around. He's so strong. And you're kind of like, you know what? I don't really identify with this guy, except for when I'm angry, you know? And, and so I don't really know what to do with this. And I kind of feel like this is what a good Christian would look like. And I'm just not like that. I'm just not that strong. I mean, this guy seems to have brought the gospel to half of the known world. Now, listen, I do think Paul was an extraordinarily strong person. I do believe that. I believe he was incredibly tough. Incredibly, I think he was an anomaly, but... I do not believe that God suspended the laws of sociology in order for—that he created in order for Paul to be successful. If you read through the book of Acts, um, and the place that hit me was—there was one day where I was at the seminary I went to in Chicago, and I was reading the book of Acts, and I got to chapter 20, and I'd been taught by a professor to pay attention to every word of the Bible, especially names and places and descriptions, because we tend to look—we read through the Bible for little phrases and sentences that, like, speak to us. You know what I'm talking about? We read it, and you just stop, and you go, you just bask, and you go, oh, that's so good. Right? You're like, I could tweet that right now, you know. And that's what we want. And the problem is that if you read the Bible like that, you will miss so much. You need to pay attention to every na- Where is that city? Why is that name there? When you read the first six verses of Acts, what you, what you hear is you hear about seven guys that were traveling with Paul, not including the one guy that was writing and referring to them all as we, Luke. And if you go through the book of Acts, and you go through Paul's epistles, There are 22 traveling companions specifically mentioned, and we know that's not near all of them. Now, these are—these are not the local pastors. These are only the people that traveled intercontinentally to work in the ministry that Paul was doing. These are only the itinerants, and only the ones mentioned. There's another 19 people mentioned who are local pastors who are in Rome, or they're in Hierapolis, or they're in somewhere, and they—that's where they live, and they pastor, and they serve the church right in that place. Or they just—or the church just meets in their house. There are a couple ladies that Paul mentions personally just because the church meets in their house. They're wealthy enough that their house is bigger than one room, and there's a villa center in their Roman-style house that the whole church can gather there. And he's like, that lady's awesome. And if you add them up, I consulted an engineer, I think that's 41, and that's only the people mentioned. We know that there's more. There's lots of people he didn't mention. And so just in the ministry of Paul, there's all these dozens of people that were working that we hear very little or nothing about that made the gospel going to a couple of continents, half the known world, possible. People that—we'll hear about like one time in like a throwaway line. There's this place in Romans 16 where he's like, oh yeah, and there's Tertius, and he writes—he wrote this all down. Like all of Romans was written by this guy. So Paul—Paul dictated it, and Tertius had to go through and like write down letter for letter on woven reeds with a pen probably made of a—like he had to write down. It's an enormously tedious task, but that's what Tertius was there for. He knew his job. He was part of Paul's crew. He got it done. And it's not just that there were a lot of people in Paul's crew that it was strong numerically. It was strong interpersonally. He had really great people, but he also just had people that did different stuff. Because not everybody has to be like an A student, okay? There's some people that like, they were really good at sewing tents, so they were on Paul's team. There were some people like, that didn't get sick the minute they got on a boat, so they were on Paul's team. You know, that kind of stuff. And so, for example, Silas was a prophet and a teacher, Timothy and Titus were pastors, Tertius was a scribe and a writer, Luke was a doctor. And if you read—just read those first six verses in Acts 20—there's people from all over the place. Derby and Macedonia and Thessalonica and Achaia, and they probably wore really different outfits, and they were raised in really different homes, and they had really different educations. And you can imagine what dinner was like on board a ship sailing through the Aegean with these guys. People just look at them like, where did—where did he dig these guys up? But there they were. Paul had a crew, and it was strong. It was strong because it was large, because he knew he needed people, and he was—everywhere he, was he went, he was looking for that guy who could be on his crew. That's why there's somebody from everywhere. He didn't steal—because he could have stole all the leadership from one spot, but he didn't do that. Because what one spot can you take your whole crew from if you're an itinerant guy? You've got to take one guy from everywhere. You've got to spread it out, and that's what he did. And he had people from different places, and he had people of different genders, and he had people of different backgrounds and races, and different ages. There's just one point where he sends Timothy to solve some problem. I think it's in Corinth, and Timothy can't handle it. So he pulls Timothy and he sends Titus, because it looks like Titus is like 20 years older and can handle it. And so just, there's just differences, and through all of that, he had built a really powerful team. And one of the things that I think sometimes we get hung up on is this. One of the reasons that this worked for Paul is because he accepted the way God does things. And that's one of the things that modern American secular people just are not good at. We want to go through what God offers us like it's a salad bar, and it's it's like the, the the roasted chicken is Jesus. You know, it's like everybody's going to get the good meat that's at the front of the salad bar, you know what I mean? Or, well, in most buffets now it's at the end. Like all the good stuff's at the end. They hope that you get like kale or something at the beginning. But, <clears throat> so you go to the back of the Christian thing, right? And everybody's like yelling at you, and you like, you get the like, whatever is there, the I don't know, the snow crab legs or something, right? You're like, that's Jesus. Everybody gets that, right? And then it's like pick and choose your way through the rest of it. And that is not how God rolls, right? If you want to compare what God does to a meal, it comes out from the chef on a plate. Everything on it is absolutely specific and integrated to the meal. He sets the plate down and turns it to show you this is a piece of art, all of it is integral. And one of the things that's integral is God's demand that we have deep, meaningful, purposeful relationships with other people to fulfill our needs and their needs. And that this is fundamental, completely mandatory, required, and necessary for the gospel to function in the world and for us to get out of what we're supposed to and for Jesus to receive the glory that he deserves. One example of this is in 1 Corinthians—or I'm sorry, in the book of 2 Corinthians— Paul is talking about this moment where he's going through northern Greece, and it was terrible. Everybody was acting like they were going to kill him, and he got beat up. He gets stoned one time, and they leave him because he looks dead. Like, it was not a good week, okay? And so he writes to the Corinthians, he says this, In our hearts we felt the sentence of death, right? That, that is not a cliché. That is somebody saying, we felt like literally everything was done but the cutting off of our heads. Like we literally were dead men walking. Like we'd lost everything. We were going to lose everything. We had nothing left to live for, nothing left to hope for. We felt like the sentence of death had already been pronounced on us, and the only thing that was left for us to do was to die. And then he said, that happened that— We might rely on our—not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So he said, all of that pain we see in retrospect was actually an action of God's teaching to us. So instead of getting angry at God, he opened his heart and his mind to what God could be teaching, and he said, we realized that it was so we wouldn't rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. And so he's already saying that God lifted us up from that, right? We thought we were dead, and God lifted us up, lifted us up from that. And our—see what we do when you, we read that in our three-minute devotional, we go, oh, isn't that great? Oh, God, I mean, I'm kind of having a hard time, and would you, like, lift me up? Would you—you're you, the one who raised Jesus from the dead. You have the power to do that, and I want to—one, we're missing the point. Did you see what the suffering was for? Right? But two, that's not the way we are implicitly, mystically assuming God is going to lift us up, isn't the way He did it. It's very easy to look at that and be like, God raises that and He raised them up. So, what He's going to do is He's just going to make me feel better. I'm going to just pray and I'm just going to feel better. Or I'm going to feel little tinglies, Or I'm going to feel like something down here in my intestines. It's like some kind of hot something. And I'm going to, like, something like, is going to happen. And I'm just going to feel better. That's not how it works. Well, I mean, it works like that sometimes. There are people that that happens to. But that's not normal, and that's not how God says it works. Just a couple chapters later, he, he actually says exactly how it did work. And this is what he says. He says, For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest. But we were harassed at every turn, conflict on the outside, and fears within. Right? He's talking about the same incident. And then he says, But God, who comforts the downcast." comforted us. So he's saying all these terrible things were happening to us, and God did step in. The question is, keep reading. How did God step in? And he says, by the coming of Titus. Now, the way most of us read the Bible, we just read over that because it's a guy's name, and who cares, and Titus is dead, and it doesn't matter. But do you see the spiritual plan that's being made there? Paul is saying that he got stoned, he got beaten up, he got yelled at, he got kicked out of towns. They lost some of their gear. They thought—I mean, they didn't know who was going to turn on them in the next. They were terrified inside. They felt like giving up. They felt like that everything had happened but the dying. And at that moment, they ran into their friend. That's what that text says. At that moment, when I was at my absolute bottom, I ran into my friend, Titus. And when when my friend showed up, he lifted my spirits incredibly. And he says more than that, he says this. Not only by his coming, but that was a big part of it, just him coming, but also the comfort you had given him. What's that? He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. You see, the reason he had sent Titus to Corinth is because he'd already sent Timothy there, and Timothy couldn't fix the problems. And for all that he knew, the entire church of Corinth and all the people he'd led to Christ and everybody that he loved there had entirely abandoned the gospel, and it was one of his fears. It was one of the terrible things that was going on in his life. And so he had sent one of his best friends, who he apparently needed to be with him. He sent this guy to Corinth to see if he could sort it out, and he did. He was able to to turn that thing around and to sort out what was going wrong with that church and to bring them back on board and help them realize how much Paul had done for them, how much they loved Jesus, how much they loved him. And so when Titus showed up, Paul was like, Titus, and what's going on with our friends in Corinth? And he said, they love you. Still, they're holding true to the gospel. They're our friends. They're our family in Jesus. And they—not only are they still together, but they remember everything you did for them, all the blood, sweat, and tears. They care. I mean, it's like—it's like a stinking Care Bears episode, (laughs) right? It's like, I felt so bad, and then I got hugged, and Titus hugged me, right? And then—but that is literally what it says. God did not raise their spirits mystically. He raised— He raised his spirits—and their friend's spirits—through friendship—through the crew that Paul had already built, not so that he could be saved from this depression problem, but because he knew it was right, and he made a crew, and he was doing the work, and he was on task, and they were accomplishing something together. But one of the results was that when he was in a place where he thought he'd done everything but the dying, his friend showed up, and he said the result was, so that my joy— was greater than ever. You see, one of the things that you and I need to realize is we need to quit asking God to fulfill what He said He would do for us in ways He never promised to do it. Right? He never promised to make our marriages better while we were being jerks to our spouses. Right? He never promised to fill our lives with a fullness of community when we don't actually love other people and make deep and meaningful friendships. He never promised that we would be wise when we didn't ask for and seek out wisdom and try to find a mentor. He he never said that we would be—we'd be tough and have huge biceps if we didn't eat right and physically train. He never said any of those things would happen. God blesses actions of faith, and actions of faith are actions. And many of those actions are specifically prescribed by God, and one of the actions he prescribes is that you need a crew. You need a strong crew. You need to be intentional about building it. And one of the first crews for all of us is just our family. Your family of origin, no matter how dysfunctional. Your actual family that you make. So if you're married, it's your spouse and your kids. And so one of the first steps is choosing your family. And I mean that in a double way. One is, if you have a family and you aren't choosing them, you need to choose them. You need to turn your heart back towards your spouse and back towards your kids. And if you haven't picked one, this is normal life. Normal human life is most people need to find and marry a suitable spouse and have children. That's what the vast majority of us need to do. And that word suitable is picked very specifically. And by suitable, this is what I mean. I mean somebody who is suitable. That is, they would be a good member of your crew, not the hottest thing you've ever seen. Okay. Ask anybody who's—okay, okay, let's, let's do this together. Raise your hand if you've been married more than five years. Okay. Raise your hand if the attractiveness of your spouse, as far as you can tell, has virtually no effect on any kind of happiness in your marriage. Yeah, that's two, about two-thirds. And, and the rest of them, they're kind of lying, or they don't get it. <laughs> Just kidding. No, it, it has it's very little effect on your life. What does matter is whether or not um, you spend each other into debt, whether or not um, you take care of your physical constitution and serve each other, whether or not you um, actually choose to love each other and desire each other personally, whether or not you choose to negotiate out, really agree on, and follow through on your parenting, whether or not you make decisions about your future together, whether or not you can actually decide on a hundred different things. And so… there are some people probably in this room that you need to take long-term committed marital relationship more seriously. And you need to realize that if you're, you're just kind of like, whatever, sure, that's cool. But you may be sinning by depriving your future spouse with a companion through these years that you're screwing around. Because they're waiting around for you. While you're finding yourself, and let me just say, almost nobody finds anything worthwhile in themselves while they're single finding themselves. If you are finding yourself, if you would label this moment of your life you're finding yourself, you are probably losing yourself. It's probably what's really happening. Also, it doesn't matter what kind of personality you have, we're all supposed to make other people our business. Listen, I am as reclusive and task-oriented almost as they come. I'm in that five percent. There are people who are a little crazier than me that like watch the movie Cast Away, and they were saying, Oh, please, God. But uh, I mean, generally speaking, I mean, I'm way over there, and—and I just—I've had to—look, I've had to accept that the reality is, is that um, I'm here for the good of other people. That's why I exist. It's like my dog that thinks that I'm supposed to, like, do stuff to serve him. Like, listen, I remind Samwise, Achilles Gibson, that you exist for us. Like, you exist only for our pleasure. And he's kind of like, no, I exist for peanut butter. And we just have this argument back and forth. Like, I exist for other people, and yeah, I'd love to be alone all the time, but I I exist for other people, and I can't very well do that. And I have to actually learn— to delight in who I've been called to be. I've been called to be a person who gives my children my full attention when they require it. I've been called to be a person who listens and doesn't just talk at my wife. I've been called to be a person who has to listen and pastor sympathetically people who God has called into this flock. Like That's what I'm called to be, and it doesn't matter what I want to do. I have to learn to want to do and delight in anything that is part of my right roles and responsibilities that I don't want to do. And most things can be enjoyed with a change of attitude and an acceptance that you're going to die, which we'll talk about again another time. Part of it is we need to choose our friendships a lot more intentionally. How many friends do you have that you know if you have a personal crisis, you can call them. They will drop whatever they're doing, and they will be there until it's done. I had a a personal crisis this last week that was a little—it was actually kind of scary. And that—so that ran through my mind. And there were actually a couple people this last week where I sat down with them and I said, Listen, this happened, and I, I didn't know if I should call you, but I want you to know that if that ever happens to you, you can call me. To which, the, in, in those cases, that person responded, You can call me. I want you to know you can call me. And you should. And th- those kind of friendships very rarely happen incidentally and especially in a more mobile society where we're all moving to different cities all the time. When we do that kind of stuff, we, we tear apart all of that social fabric, all of that fabric of love and, and investment, and we go to these, all these different places, which means two things. One, we maybe we shouldn't move as much. And two, when we do, you need to get in there and build a crew right away, even if you're only going to be there for a year. Until you can look at your crew and know that you have some drop-everything friends. Fourth, we need to prepare to bring value to our crew. One of the things that—like, I think I bring value to my crew right now, which is less than I think, but one of the things I'm thinking about is the 84-year-old version of me, God help us all, right? And what, what do I need to be developing right now so that when I'm 84, no matter how frail my health, I will have something to—because I'll still be in a crew if I'm alive. And what will I have to contribute? I want to be twice as wise as I am right now, at least be grateful to be a factor of 10, right? I want to learn how to affirm people, because right now I'm the senior pastor of a church, and people think my criticism matters. But I'm 84, like, nobody wants to listen to an 84 grumpy person tell them what's wrong with what they did. Right, I'm gonna have to be like, you are fabulous. I lo- you're, That's wonderful. That was so. You fell so well. You know, like, like I'm gonna have to be this. I mean, I'm, and I'm working on that right now. Partly because my kids desperately need it, but partly because I I want to invest in the future me too. So that because my crew is gonna need something from me. I don't want to be a freeloader, and I, I may not be able to keep my knees good. I can't control those kinds of things. But I can control whether or not I become a wise person. I can control whether or not I invest in godliness. I can not control whether or not I'm, I serve my wife for decades so that when I'm 84 I can turn around and tell somebody who's having problems, this is what I did for 45 years. And this is what it takes. And you and I need to invest incredibly in our capacities because we exist for other people. And they need us. And they need the things that are just seeds inside of us to grow to fruit. And if you're in your 20s, that that whole decade, that's basically all it's for. You're just increasing your capacities and paying off debts. I'm sorry that wasn't that funny, but it's it's an incredibly defining decade. But that's true. It continues to be true as we go along. One of the incredible things about ministry, and I don't mean just vocational ministry, I mean anybody who serves other people. If you don't have your amazing idea in physics by the time you're 28, statistically, you're not going to get it. You're never going to be an important physicist. It's over. Your brain is already too calcified. You can be in your highest level of fruitfulness in ministering to other people in your 80s. There's nothing built into ministry that caps you at a certain age because it's wisdom and care and understanding people and understanding how they develop and understanding God's ways, none of which change. And so you literally can be at the highest level of capacity, the highest level of fruitfulness, the highest level of changing other people's lives. About a week before you croak. You guys, that is incredible news. Think about that. When you are the old guy at work and nobody cares about you anymore, and when you can't even like climb the telephone pole or plug in the thing or figure out how to code that thing, you can be someone who can breathe wisdom and life and affirmation and comfort and strength into the lives of struggling people, no matter what the difficulties are at that moment in our histories. The second is is that you don't just need a strong crew, you need a vigilant crew. You need a crew that is constantly looking out for you and telling you about the dangers coming up on you. If you look at these last verses, I would love to preach a whole sermon on eldership, and if you're going to nominate an elder, this is another passage to look at very closely, Acts chapter 20, because Paul goes over in great detail what a good elder looks like, what he did, and what he charges them to do. And if I were you, along with 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1, I would take this passage as my third, and then 1 Peter chapter 5, the first five or six verses, those would be my key four Bible passages. Before I ever nominated an elder, I would would meditate over those for a couple of days. It's very hard to get away from the theme of what Paul charges these men with, and it is vigilance. You need to watch out. For yourselves, you need to watch out for these people, right? He says, keep watch of yourself. Be shepherds. What do shepherds do? They watch out for sheep that aren't watching most of the time, right? Savage wolves are going to come. Like, this is not going to be an eventless shift. Don't kid yourself. They're going to come from your own number. People will rise up and destroy the truth. So you don't have to just look outside. You have to be vigilant inside. And so, so what are we being vigilant about? Already we're being vigilant about ourselves, right? Keep watch over yourselves and the flock and among your own crew. You have to be universally vigilant, right? He says, then be on your guard and he said, for the three years I was with you, I never stopped warning you. And then all through this, there's these intensifiers about the, the church of—the church that God— the people in your crew that God has put you in vigilant relationship with, they are bought—the Holy Spirit has put you in that place. Those people—Jesus died for them. And I told you about this not one time. But day and night, and I, I, I cried in front of you about how important this is and how fast we forget and how, how flippant we are about it. And in addition to this, as added this problem, that you and I live in one of the most safest, one of the safest human contexts ever in human existence. And here's the problem with that, is safety's unintended consequence is vulnerability, which is a little ironic. So if you go through and you have a couple of kids, let's say, let's say you get married and have a couple of kids, and you make your house as safe as possible. You make this incredibly safe house where, like, everything is bubble-wrapped, and there's foam, like, and it's like all foam floors, and, like, if you fall off of something, there's, like, one of those like, beds of square, you know, whatever. And you're like, my kids—and and, and listen, if your kids never leave your house and nothing ever changes, your kids will be the safest kids in America. But if you move or if they leave your house, they are the most vulnerable human beings there could possibly be. Because they have no skills of vigilance or capacities for survival, they're domesticated. And we live in a context in which there have been so many graces of modern life, really wonderful things, that have taken care of all the dangers of our life, or at least seem to, and have made us the most domesticated group of human creatures ever to exist. From building codes that make it so that there can't be this much difference between sidewalks, because why would you look where you're going? to our belief in modern health, that we can entirely abuse our bodies and not be vigilant at all about our health because surely there will be a medicine or a cure or something for this, to being part of a, a commodity culture of trash. Let me ask you a question. This is participatory. How many people know why women—mainly women—used to have burnt-out light bulbs in their sewing kits? Why do women used to—go ahead. Right. To fix—to mend socks here's why they did that. Because people used to mend socks. (laughs) Seriously, people did that. And now we don't do that. We just throw them away. We just throw everything away. In fact, my three-year-old, whenever anything breaks, you know my three-year-old used to say before I told told her it wasn't appropriate, Daddy, we'll just get another one. I'm just glad that we didn't have another child. She'd break that and say, oh, let's get another one. I mean, my, my kids, it took, it's taken me years to get out of their heads that that's not the way we look at the world. That you get something, you use it for a couple of months, then you throw it away. Because after a while you start thinking about your relationships and your marriage and your friendships and your job and everything in human existence like that. But we don't have to take care of anything. You don't, you don't take care of something, fine. Even your car, you, don't, you wreck your car, you just, that's why you have insurance. And you can go through all of these things Like, who has, had to fight, who has had to fight a war because the place you lived was invaded, right? Maybe a couple international students That's, I mean, that's it right? If you've been to war, it's because you signed up But it's not because people came to burn and pillage your home For the most part And we even have vehicles that you can, like, leave late for a place that would have taken you 17 days to get to, and you can make up 20 minutes on the way. And what this—when you put all this together, what this produces is a reality in which the blessings of safety, which are—which really are blessings, always have the unintended consequence of making us fragile and vulnerable. So we are among the safest humans, physically speaking, that have ever existed. And we're also some of the most fragile, with the lowest levels of personal discipline, with the largest lack of vigilance, the lowest amount of personal resources, and some of the lowest levels of determination that have ever existed. Let me just ask you, if I went and got a group of ancient Sumerians, the same number as us, same age layout and gender layout, and brought them in here and we had a huge fight to the death, who do you think would win? All right. Like you'd be like, well, we got modern nutrition, so we'll have about five inches on them. No, they're gonna break off these microphone things and stab you with them, and you're gonna die. That's what's gonna happen. They're made a hundred times tougher than you, because they lived in a totally different world, and so they were vigilant because they knew how. Because part of vigilance is actually knowing what to look for. You have to be schooled in vigilance and you have to know what you're looking for. And if you don't, then you don't know what to do. So in Acts 20, Paul lays it out. He's like, you need to be careful about yourself. Your heart is wicked. You need to be careful about the crew, the other—even among the— you need to be careful the whole church, and then even the elders—the people that you have selected because of their godliness. You need to watch out even among them. Some of them will turn out to be wolves. We used to tell—we used to teach children the seven deadly sins and the seven virtues. Why? The main purpose of that was that they would learn them, but also so that they could be vigilant every day about the seven deadly sins and vigilant toward building the seven profound virtues, so that they would know what they were meant to be and how they were to be vigilant against what would attack them. In a number of um, American Native American cultures, there is a game that children are taught to play when they're like seven years old or younger called Touch the Deer, it's called Touch the Deer, and the way this works is you teach the kid how to track and how to stalk, and then for them to win the game and to be allowed to be a hunter, they have to sneak up on a deer and touch it in the wild with their hand, okay? Touch the deer. There are Native Americans alive today that were brought up playing this game, okay? Now that sounds weird for us, right? It's because we're domesticated. It's not even that hard, apparently. Six-year-olds can do it. And we're like, man, my quads could never take that much squatting. You know? But here's the thing. Nobody plays touch the turkey. That sounds a little weird, right? But, but nobody plays touch the turkey. And here's why. Deer are, in terms of survival, are more, are, are, are superior to turkeys in almost every way. in in virtually every physical way. Even when turkeys fly, deer can run faster than turkeys can fly, or it's very close. And deer and, and turkeys have very similar eyesight. Deer have far superior smell and slightly superior hearing, I think. Deer are taller, so they have a better sight vantage point. They can jump over obstacles much easily. They can go from zero to their top speed much faster. Turkeys are like, I'm gonna fly! I'm gonna fly! I'm gonna— f-. And then, like, eventually they get going, you know? I mean, if you're right on top of one, you can grab it before it can fly, right? But here's the thing. Nobody's ever ridden right on top of a turkey. In fact. This is, how tur- this is how deer hunting goes. In deer hunting, you like sneak up on a deer, or you like get in a spot and wait for them to walk by and shoot them. In turkey hunting, you know what you do? For those of you who are not outdoorsmen, you pretend you are a turkey and you call them to you. Because nobody sneaks up on a turkey. And here's why. Because they weren't around in flocks, and you just can't beat 12 to 37 eyes. Because turkeys are always—there's always like 12 of them, and they're like, they're always going like this. And when they see something, there is no hesitation. The minute they see something that is slightly untoward, they are gone. Whereas the deer will be kind of like, what is that? Because, like, if you're a deer and it's a fox, you're kind of like, stupid fox. Because yeah, It's a fox, right? The only thing that kills you in the woods are packs of coyotes and humans. That's pretty much it, right? Unless you sprint into a tree or something, right? <laughs> Whereas a, a turkey wins like zero battles, you're like, you pick something in the woods versus turkey, and you're like, I don't know if that turkey's gonna make it, you know? Maybe he's got really big spurs. It's just a, a fox will kill a turkey, a coyote will kill a turkey, not a pack of coyotes, one coyote will kill a turkey. Everybody kills turkeys. Everybody loves turkeys. Turkeys are like shrimp in the ocean. Everybody loves them. Right? And so they are looking, and they are going, and that's all it takes to survive and they look for each other, and if one of them sees it, they squawk, and they are gone. If you turkey hunt, you cannot make one mistake. You can make a deer—I've I had deer hunting where I've I, I like jumped a deer, and I like made a little deer call, and it came back around. Turkeys will never do that. So here's the moral of the story, in case you're wondering if we're going to talk about turkeys and deer any longer. Um, you may feel like you are profoundly superior in your capacity to be self-vigilant. And you may be pretty good. I'm not saying you're not good. You might be pretty good. You may have been a good part of your life learning how to be spiritually vigilant and spiritually strong, and that's great. You still need to be a turkey. You still need to get a crew around you and learn how to be vigilant for each other and invite them to tell you what they see coming up on you. No matter what it is, no matter how small it is, and you need to invite them to tell you in a way that is not particularly self-righteous or judgmental. And, and, and people will do this because last service, I had three times the normal number of people that criticized me, criticized me after last service. So that's really good. Very nicely. I mean, if you invite people, people don't think it's possible and that you don't want, to talk, that you don't, you don't want the feedback. If you beg people for it, they will give it to you, and it could save your life, and little leaks that turn into a full boat that will sink you, can be headed off where it's not even hard to adjust. If you have enough people in your life that are wise enough, that have been trained to be vigilant, who actually love you, that you've invited into your life to tell you stuff, then—this is especially true the younger you are—then people can come in and give you advice, and you can change course before you screw things up too bad. And it is so easy, but if nobody can speak to you, and if you're arrogant about your own life, and people just keep their mouths shut, you are the person that pays, and everybody your life affects. But if you will recognize that you need group vigilance around you, and that you need to be co-turkeyed with somebody and a bunch of people, it could save your life. It will make your faith so much stronger, because that vigilance will protect you so much more deeply. And it'll have layers and layers and layers of overlap to your vigilance. One of the most unsecure things you can possibly happen is a bunch of people looking to hold a place secure and they only have one layer of sight vigilance. If you want to be secure, you've got to have like five levels of security. And that only happens when you have a crew of 35 people, six of them are really close, and all of them have permission to tell you what they fear or what great thing they see developing in you. I don't have a lot of time to go over this stuff, but let me end with this. If you recognize that it actually takes belief, a certain kind of outlook of what the world is, a trust in Jesus, and, and you, you have a recognition that you have to be intentional about building a crew—nobody's going to give you a crew. You have to build a crew, or you have to be invited on somebody's crew, which is easier then you will realize that this is one of the most important things to make your faith unsinkable. And one of the things I think we need to realize about the gospel is this. Jesus came to do both things. He came to create the vessel and to build the crew. He did both. And sometimes we only think about the vessel of salvation in the gospel, his death and resurrection. We look at that and we think that God made a way for salvation, and that the crew thing is optional. It's not. He built the vessel of the gospel and then he created the crew of the church. And he demanded that we participate in both. In fact, it's one of the first things Jesus did in his ministry, right? He picked a 12 person crew. He led a bigger crew than that. There were levels. There was this closest guy, Peter, his three. There was a 12. There was a 72. He had it all laid out. They were all, in, they were all crewed with each other. And then when he turned them loose, they all knew that they would make crews and crews and crews and crews. And they split and divided and moved and went. And everywhere they went, they created a crew. And a bunch of little crews together were a church. And only in that context will you be able to, to make it through the storms, to make it through the difficulties, to have somebody there when you need them, to always have somebody who will drop everything when something is happening, to not have mutinies in your home and in your friendship crews because you are going somewhere together, because, because you care about the same things with other people and because you're fighting for them together, the pressure from the outside will pull you together and the pressures from the inside you'll have to dissipate because you know you have to be united because of the problem. It's peep. its groups of people that have no problems that slit each other's throats, right? Or when the problems are so overwhelming, people just want to cut and run and save themselves. But it's groups of people in small groups and churches and families where there is real pressure from the outside because you're really trying to accomplish something, where, you're, where that pressure will pull you together and the pressure between you will have to dissipate and you have deeper and more profound relationships, and the result—one of the results will be that when you're in that place where you feel like you have experienced in yourself the very sentence of death, that there will be people around you that will be able to reach out and grab you and tell you that they care and provide what you need and to help you when you're helpless so that you can find yourself ultimately in the place where your joy is greater than ever.